Welcome to Season 8 of American Political History, Colonial America. Foundations. In Maryland, the Calverts were the lord proprietors of the colony. The initial plantations and their families required the patronage of their lord proprietors. The Calverts simply gave away large estates to their friends, family, and political allies. Through this process, the estates of the Bennets, Lloyds, Delaney's, and Carrolls came about. Though these great families still had to run successful plantations in order to survive. And as other patronage systems worked, sometimes the Calverts would grab successful new upstarts in order to incorporate them within their political circles. Daniel Delaney was an immigrant from Queen's Country, Ireland. He arrived in Maryland in 1703 with his two brothers. All three arrived as indentured servants. Daniel had the good fortune to be sold to Colonel George Platter, who was in need of a clerk in his law office. Daniel served his indentureship and by a decade later was a practicing lawyer and landowner in Prince George County. Daniel managed to marry well, marrying Rebecca Smith, the daughter of Colonel William Smith, a wealthy Marylander. Daniel grew wealthy from his legal practice and shrewd management of the family plantation. Daniel Delaney would amass his fortune by purchasing key points of land on the frontier. If the land was settled, he would have all of the most valuable real estate in the region and make large profits. Daniel Delaney was one of the forerunners of land speculation on frontier colonial America, and many attempted to chase his success in that speculation. In South Carolina, the plantations grew wealthy growing indigo and rice. They developed industry around commodities like rosin, turpentine, and ship bars. They built grand manors along the riverbanks near Charleston, as being so close to the rivers was known to keep milder breezes through the hot summer months. This combined, of course, with a fresh mint julep. But don't be fooled by the stereotypes of the South that we think of today. Gentlemen resting in the heat. These early generations of planters, just like their counterparts in Virginia, were constantly industrious and searching for the next way to make a fortune. The Carolina plantations were set up by those coming from Barbados in the West Indies. They came with knowledge of how to run successful slave-placed plantations, unlike the other colonies which found initial success with small farmers discovering how to grow tobacco. The cities in South Carolina were designed from the start to be oriented around surrounding large plantation agriculture. As these merchants had invested to start the plantation, the culture in the Carolinas saw no difference between the merchant class and the planter class, the wealthiest merchants in South Carolina were almost always also the large plantation owners. The Manigault family, founded by Paris Manigault, was a French Huguenot who arrived in 1695 accompanied by his brother Gabriel. Gabriel died shortly after their arrival from injuries he received while falling off a scaffold. Paris married Judith Gitton. After trying and failing at farming, they moved to Charleston to open a tavern. When they became successful at this, they soon opened a distillery, and then a factory for making barrels, and with further success, they became owners of warehouses along the river. Upon Paris's death, he passed his substantial fortune to his son Gabriel. His son would go on to succeed where his parents had not, by becoming one of the most successful planters in South Carolina. By the middle of the 18th century, Charleston's population was around 15,000 people, 
and had the highest per capita wealth of any colonial American city. Charleston was the cultural center of the South, and arguably the cultural center of colonial America. It was known for its public libraries, quality of newspapers, and fashion-forward population. Charleston established and supported the theater, concerts, and they imported the latest literature from Europe. Charleston was a polished and sophisticated American city rivaling that of London itself. Charleston's aristocracy contrasted sharply with the aristocracy of New York. The aristocracy was much smaller in number, but just as politically powerful. The Dutch Patroon system in the New Netherlands still had the imprint generations later. It established the early aristocratic families who had acquired enormous land holdings. Colonel William Smith, the Chief Justice of New York, had received a grant of 50 miles on Long Island, establishing the Manor of St. George. Godfrey Delaus received a grant of 1.4 million acres. Stephanos van Cortland had purchased enough land from the Lenape to establish a 200-square-mile manor in the Croton Valley. Frederick Philippes established Phillipsburg between the Hudson River and the Bronx. Robert Livingston, Peter Schuler, and Caleb Heathcote were other notable manorial lords of New York. The culture that developed with these northern aristocrats could not have been more different than their southern counterparts. While their southern counterparts took a paternalistic leaning towards their duties towards the society, the New York manorial lords focused their attention on obtaining power and influence over mundane political interests, like the rules of trade or the regulations on the legal profession. Robert Livingston, the Scottish progenitor of the distinguished New York family, became the town clerk of Albany in 1674, and so successfully used this office for his own economic opportunities that he had acquired 160,000 acres in Dutchess and Columbia counties. The Livingstons became the head of a powerful conservative Whig faction of New York politics. New York was a political scene of pragmatism and pure power politics for financial gain. John Adams would sourly comment at the beginning of the revolution that New York possesses not a single cultured man. During this colonial period, America developed a societal-wide doctrine that would last until modern America. The notion of the dignity of labor and the virtue of applying one's labor diligently to whatever task was at hand. This work ethic was a fundamental part of the societal doctrines of the Puritans and Quakers, who exemplified it so much it would become known as the Protestant work ethic. This work ethic was considered at the time something unique and special to the American colonies. Not because people in other cultures didn't work hard, but because how widespread this work ethic permeated the American colonies. The rise of this culture was supported by environmental aspects within the New World itself. First, was that the returns from one's individual work was unusually high in the New World when compared to Europe. In Europe, laborers of all types were captured by lords' coffers and guild systems. In the New World, one could arrive, apply your trade, succeed or fail based on your own industriousness. Second, was that opportunities existed and were often abundant in the New World. English colonies were starving for labor, and especially skilled laborers. American culture was filled with prominent people who had a generation before come as immigrants and work their way into prosperity. 
The aristocracy of America was not concerned if you had the right seal or papers, but if you were willing to work hard so they could invest in your business venture and make a profit themselves. Third was the predominance of a culture of establishing family estates. Americans had the ambition to set a dynasty and legacy for their families, and they worked tirelessly to obtain this goal. Lastly, these many ambitions combined with spiritual doctrines and created a cultural work ethic in which people would pursue their opportunities with a mix of industriousness, spiritual zealotry, and self-interested greed, which would create a universal social doctrine which was at first ridiculed by Europeans and then later respected when Adam Smith would write his famous book about the invisible hand in America. The Protestant work ethic was the cultural bedrock and foundation for the success that would happen in colonial America. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share the show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.